Our sermon text is the 1 Samuel 25 reading. It's a text which is sandwiched between two chapters where David restrains himself and then spares Saul's life. Here, in this chapter, in the middle, we have a stark contrast to that restraint. It's another long, artful narrative, and we'll look at it, Lord willing, over two weeks. But today, I want to make two points. One is called the insult, and that's in verses 2 through 13, and the other is the intelligence in verses 14 through 31. The insult and the intelligence. So first, the insult. The text opens with a a notice about a man, a wealthy man with property in Carmel, which is a town in Judah. The text speaks of his property, of his wealth, of his thousand goats, his 3,000 sheep, and only then, after all of that, at the end, do we get his name, Nabal. And this is fitting because this is a man identified by and with his wealth. His personhood is determined by his property, and that's seen in the way the narrator introduces him. Assets first, name last. Assets, 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 name. That tells you something decisive about this guy. And his name, Nabal, means fool. Which here, as elsewhere in Scripture, does not mean a humorous or an inept person or even an ignorant person. There can be very, very intelligent, skillful fools. A fool is someone who lives without regard for God and for his word. To be a fool like Nabal is to be a moral and spiritual and social disaster. The text says he's surly and mean in his dealings. He has a wife, an extraordinary figure in Scripture, underlooked, underappreciated, I think. Her name is Abigail. And the first thing we're told about Abigail is she's intelligent and she's beautiful. Nevertheless, she's in a calamity of a marriage with this wreck of a human being for her husband. Now, David, we know this from earlier, David was good-looking. He was beautiful in his own way. And the word here for intelligent, used of Abigail, has already been used of David earlier in the story. So, an astute reader of 1 Samuel thinks, oh, He's beautiful and intelligent. She's beautiful and intelligent. She's kind of a, already a sort of fitting counterpart to David. So David hears, he hears that Nabal is shearing sheep. And he sends ten men with a message for Nabal. And there's a lot of goodwill in the message. A lot of humility. They begin by wishing Nabal peace and life and good health to him and his house and everything that's his. It's sheep shearing time, which was a time of a lot of hard work, but it was also a time of festivity, eating and drinking. And it was a fitting time for for generosity, for showing kindness. And so David reminds Nabal of what he and his his four or five, six hundred member band of malcontents have done for Nabal. He says, we didn't mistreat your shepherds. Nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants. They will tell you. 
Now, as usual with David, there's just enough ambiguity in the whole story to ask yourself this. Are David and his men doing this out of the kindness of their heart? You know, maybe expecting a sort of token gesture, a small gift in return? Or are David and his men running a protection racket? Right, run by a band of wilderness marauders on vulnerable shepherds. I mean, on the surface, David's request seems innocent enough. But his response later, when his request is denied, makes it seem very much like he feels something is owed to him. It looks like he's asking, but it becomes pretty clear he's demanding. In any event... His men continue, you know, telling Nabal, therefore be favorable since we come as a festive time. Please give your servants and your son, David, whatever you can find for them. Whatever token gift you have for us would be delightful. David called himself Saul's son in the previous chapter. He calls himself Nabal's son here. Now, if it's not the real thing, it's at least the etiquette of humility. So David and his men go, they give that whole message that, we just, that I just outlined, they give that message to Nabal. Then the text says they waited. We don't know for how long, but eventually Nabal answers. And it's not a mere refusal. He pours contempt on David. You must think about this from Nabal's point of view. It appears that he views this as some kind of extortion. Could he be thinking something like this? I never contracted any services with you. In any event, almost surely his own economic self-interest, his own substance and property is at the heart of his reply. Here's his reply. Sneering. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? I mean, these are rhetorical questions, but especially the second question indicates he knows exactly who David is. He knows who this guy is. He calls him as Saul did, right? And for Saul, it was a term of derision. He calls him the son of Jesse. This is an insult. And Nabal's response continues, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. It's a time of general social rebellion. This is a direct insult, right? He's He's saying to David, you're just a renegade against King Saul. Nabal is a wealthy landowner. He's a man concerned with the social hierarchy. He wants stability. He wants law and order. He's like the rich man in the the gospel parable. He wants to build bigger barns. And David and this marauding band, they're a threat to order. And thus, they're a threat to Nabal's concern with Nabal, with himself. And in verse 11 in the text, he manages to use the first person pronoun eight times. So it's just saturated with self-indulgence. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I've slaughtered from my shearers and give them to men who are coming from who knows where? There it is. Look at me. I'm Nabal. So much winning. Then look at these men. 
from who knows where, without pedigree, without credentials, low-life, dispossessed, unsuccessful losers. It's a self-indulgent, condescending, arrogant reply. Even if he doesn't strictly owe David anything, a token gift would be fitting. So David's men go back, and the text says they report every word to David, which means they rehearse the spirit and the substance of this reply. And David is now bereft of the previous restraint that he's shown to Saul. He now acts like a Saul. He tells his men, strap on your swords. He takes up his own sword as well. This insult, this slight will be met with violence. There will be blood. 400 of his men head up with him to Nabal's estate. Violence and self-destruction are very near to the surface of some souls. Even great souls like David's. His is one of them. He is a volatile man. And, you know, this, this incident, after showing that masterful restraint that we saw last week against the Lord's anointed, right? We are often vulnerable after our greatest spiritual moments. David had a great spiritual victory in his life. After our victories, we're vulnerable. After we think we've attained some kind of moral merit or we've made a little deposit in a spiritual bank account, the soul's violence, its entrenched evil, its turbulence, has a way of reasserting itself and quickly. It's one of the great lessons of this text. And often nothing works to bring it to the surface like an insult or a slight. That shows us what's down there. So vigilance, right, a sense of being sober and being alert and being on our guard, of taking heed lest we who think we stand fall. Right? This kind of watching is a permanent feature of spiritual life in this age before the eschaton. Especially if you're doing well, or think you're doing well. So that's the insult. The second thing here is the intelligence. There's an irony in the way the narrator puts this. One of Nabal's servants goes to Abigail. Of course, Nabal had just said with contempt, many servants are breaking away from their masters these days, and one of his servants breaks away and tells Abigail what has just happened how Nabal hurled these insults at David's men who were very good to our shepherds, didn't mistreat, didn't steal. They were like a wall of protection around us. And in verse 17, the servant says, now think it over and see what you can do. That's what he says to Abigail. Disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. He is such a wicked man that no one can talk to him. Notice this addition, right? Nabal is not just wicked and self-indulgent and materialistic. right? He's not just evil. He's unreasonable. Of course, these things often go together, but not always. He's just an unreasonable person. No one can talk to this guy. Now he's placed all of us in jeopardy. So this servant goes to Abigail. Why? Well, he knows she's shrewd and intelligent, and obviously he trusts her. 
And you can bet with a husband like this, this is certainly not the first time that she's had to intervene to stop and undo the damage he causes. It's interesting in this text. Abigail does not do what you think a good Christian wife would do. She does not say, he's the head of the house. He might be crude and foolish. But he doesn't owe David any money. It's his call. She doesn't say, you know, I disagree, but it's his call. She doesn't defer to him. She doesn't even talk to him. She doesn't consult with him. She knows that talking to this guy in these situations is a waste of time. She just goes around him. She defies Nabal to save him and his household. She's not the first wife to have to do this, to save a foolish husband from himself. Abigail acted quickly, the text says. She's decisive and resourceful. She almost certainly has all control over the food and the domestic animals and the servants on the estate to do what she does. She loads up this super abundant gift, a kind of peace offering, and she sends it on ahead with the servants, saying that she'll follow. And then the text reminds us, in case you missed it, but she did not Tell her husband Nabal. He can figure out the money's missing later. It's a big expenditure. Peter Lightheart, who's certainly a conservative, traditional sort of guy, in his commentary on 1 Samuel, he says this. He says, Whatever we might say about the husband's headship in the home has to include consideration of this passage. Abigail was a great hero of the faith, and she's heroic precisely because she treated her husband as the fool that he was. Remarkable. So, the gifts get sent on ahead. Then Abigail comes riding her donkey in a ravine. She meets David and his men, armed, angry, out for blood. David has just said, the text said, David has just said to his men, it's been useless watching this guy's property. He paid me back evil for good. And then he takes a vow to kill every male that belongs to Nabal by morning. And the word for male is a crude phrase. It's vulgar. It matches David's vulgar mood. You can look it up in the King James, which doesn't shrink from translating it properly. So Abigail sees David, gets off her donkey, and engages in the etiquette of humility herself. There's an extraordinary courage here because this is a vulnerable woman before a bloodthirsty mob. And she would certainly know that the other guy, Saul, has just slaughtered all the priests and all the people in the city of Nob. So she bows herself down before David. Her life is now out in the open at his mercy. And she starts like this. Mine is the blame. Or on me be the guilt. The NIV says, pardon your servant. She's cunning, Abigail. 
And this is also a brilliant opening. Count me as the guilty one. After all, she's banking here on the fact that David is not likely to kill an unarmed woman, especially a beautiful one bearing gifts. She calls him my Lord 14 times in her speech to him, which is usually used by wives of their husbands in the Old Testament. And it may be an early sign that she's already transferred her affection and her allegiance to David, for as you know, she will end up as his wife at the end of this chapter. So, she continues, and she says to to David, in the presence of his men, hear what your servant has to say. Pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man Nabal. The, the, The pardon me, mine is the guilt, that's just an opening gesture. Here she cuts to the chase. We all know his is the blame. That wicked Nabal, he's a fool just like his name, and folly goes with him. I mean, to put it mildly, she does not cover her husband's weaknesses. Quite the opposite. Robert Alter says here, it is hard to think of another instance in literature where a wife so quickly and so devastatingly interposes distance between herself and her husband. Now, by contrast, she puts herself forward. I did not see the men my Lord had sent. In other words, David, it would have been a lot different if your men had come to see me. You can almost sense something like, I try not to let my foolish husband deal too much with the outside world. Like, you you, you get the impression, right, that this is a woman who spends half her life buffering people from her husband. Then she swears an oath. And in the middle of the oath, she says, the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and avenging yourself with your own hands. Notice, notice this. She's confident that her intercession, her interposition of her body between David and Nabal's estate, right, has already succeeded. The Lord has kept you, past tense. This, she says, when the issue is still very much in doubt. And then she says, may all your enemies be like Nabal. Now think about this, right? We know that David's armed for blood, but all Nabal did was give a cranky, surly response to David's men say, get out of here. At this point, Abigail now views her husband as accursed. May all your enemies, David, be as Nabal, meaning fools, and perhaps she already senses fools who will meet their own doom. And then she presents this gift, which she had prepared for David and his men. This is one of the great speeches. Again, there's five or six or seven of them in 1 Samuel. This is one of them. And what it does is it reverses the violent direction of the narrative. The narrative is flowing on like a river of violence, and then Abigail steps in and changes the current, makes it flow a different way. And here, she becomes a prophet. She continues and says this. Now listen to this, because you haven't heard this yet. Abigail says, The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. This is beyond anything we've seen in 1 Samuel. Anything said or prophesied to David at this point. And it's before the great prophecy from the prophet Nathan about David having a dynasty, an everlasting house in 2 Samuel 7. Before that, Abigail declares that David will have a lasting dynasty. 
It's remarkable, isn't it? If you ask someone, where is the great prophecy in the Bible that David will have an everlasting monarchy, everyone will say, 2 Samuel 7, from the prophet Nathan. And now you're going to be able to say, ah, but Abigail does it first in 1 Samuel 25. She prophesies it before Nathan does. And then she goes on and does a little clever ethical instruction. No wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Now it's hyperbole, and plenty of wrongdoing will be found in David. But it reminds David of how he should live, how he should conduct himself. Your life, she says, will be protected. And here she becomes poetic, meaning she expresses this idea with these words, your life will be bound securely in the bundle of the living, which means bound in like the pouch of the living. And your enemies will be hurled away as from the pocket of a sling. So she's alluding to the fact that even as you destroyed Goliath by hurling a stone from the pocket of your sling, so shall your enemies be thrown away, but your life will be secured in a bundle. When the Lord brings David To the throne, she says, he will not have on his conscience, and then she uses this phrase, the staggering burden of needless bloodshed. Like she's deeply concerned for David's conscience, his soul, his ability to govern, if he avenges himself. It's unnecessary And it's unwise, David, this avenging of Nabal. It's in your personal, moral, and your long-term political self-interest to heed my plea. That's the whole force of you don't want the staggering guilt of bloodshed on your conscience. And David does heed her plea. And we will, Lord willing, look at the conclusion of the story next week. But suffice it to say that Abigail has turned away his wrath. So let us conclude. Here I'm going to make two applications, one for each point in the sermon. Let's call them providence and propitiation. The first one is providence. This story is a wonderful object lesson in the myriad goodness and wisdom and power of God's providence. But it highlights, of course we say that a lot around here, but this highlights one aspect of the providence which might not be as much front and center as other aspects. It's what one one scholar called preventative providence. I think this is an aspect of God's providence that we don't often acknowledge or stop to thank God for. His preventative providence. You know, in one sense, we're partaking with our friends and neighbors in a form of preventative providence in the middle of this coronavirus outbreak. Sometimes God goes before us, we take some actions so that we don't have further trouble down the road. But here, we're talking about God preventing us from pursuing our folly. God restrains us. He rescues us in advance. He redirects us. He holds us back from our own stupidity. This is often unseen, and we, don't, we may not even know it. We may not even acknowledge it. But God is constantly intercepting us as he intercepts David on the road to folly because we are prone to wander. Because, because our souls are volatile. 
Because there's a kind of turbulence that can be easily stirred up, and we go this way, and then we go that way, and then we do this, and then we do that. And we're rash. And God prevents and restrains and holds us back. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And thank God that through servants, servants like Abigail, God does not leave us to our own devices. He thwarts our folly, meeting us with angels when we are like Balaam on his donkey. So we should be grateful for this. We should remember it. Just as we remember God's providence when he relieves us from suffering or delivers us or positively blesses us by fulfilling our desires, we should remember that God keeps us constantly from ourself and from our sin. This is an important aspect of his unthwartable governance of the world. And it's this saving of David from himself, from himself, for we are always our first and often our worst enemies. He saves David from himself. That guarantees that David will, in fact, occupy the throne, have a sure house, and a dynasty. So second here is propitiation. This is a word which speaks of averting God's wrath. It's applied in the New Testament lesson from Romans 3 to Jesus' sacrifice, his atoning sacrifice on our behalf. Here in our text, we see in Abigail a picture of the gospel. Right? She is fleshing out the beauty and the intelligence of the gospel. She points us to Jesus in her courage, especially in her placing her body in the path of David's wrath, in her deep, deep humility, in her willingness to be the guilty party, in her presentation of a gift which is designed to avert wrath. All these things Jesus Christ does. Like Christ who interposed for us, she delivers both Nabal from his self-indulgent folly and David from his blind, angry wrath. Notice that in the text. She saves Nabal and she saves David by interposing herself between them. Right? Christ dies for fools, the Nabal in us, and he dies for angry men, the David in us. And thus, we, we look at Jesus Christ, we should speak of him as the summit of God's preventative and restraining and rescuing and intercepting and wrath-averting providence. He's the summit of God's unthwartable and beautiful and intelligent providence. A providence which saves us from our fiercest enemies, namely our own twisted selves. He to rescue us from danger interposed his precious blood. Amen.